From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 101, and I'm by myself again doing one of my solo episodes. This will actually be a pretty comprehensive series of many solo episodes, similar to what I did with the James Bond series. Uh, I got, for Christmas, the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Criterion set, which is a beast of 39 Swedish Bergman films. Um, I got onto Bergman back when I was in college uh, for two reasons. One, I really got into Woody Allen then, and I started to trace his influences, which were Ingmar Bergman and the Marx Brothers, essentially, uh, is what you get when you get Woody Allen. And I also had a roommate who uh, is the person who first introduced me to the Criterion Collection and subsequently all the foreign masters. And so, uh, for some reason, Bergman was the one that I was first drawn to, and so I, I was collecting his movies, but I by no means have gotten through them all. And so now I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go through this beautiful and comprehensive box set. Uh, and what they've done that's really, really fascinating for this series is they've uh, broken it into six uh, little mini, not mini, but film festivals, uh, a opening night group of films, a centerpiece one, two, and three, and a closing night. Or five, I guess it's five. One, two, three, four, five. There we go, I can count. Uh, and so I'm going to do it in the order that they've curated for me, uh, which is different than chronological order of the, the, the films are made in. And who knows, maybe I'll have someone join me at some point on, on either this or a, a, a fuller episode throughout at some point. So you might get far more Bergman than you bargained for. Uh, but people have told me that they do enjoy these episodes where I, I dig a little deeper into certain things and also go into the foreign stuff. So I'm going to keep on delivering it. Uh, although for those who uh, like the popcorn movies, this one might not be for you. Although I'll try to keep it generic enough so that it's not super spoilery, but I'll just get into the stuff I love. Uh, and if I do change my mind and make it spoilery, I'll let you know all about that as well. So in this first edition of this Bergman ongoing series, uh, it's what I'm calling the opening night, which, and I'm calling it that because that's what it's called in the, the Ingmar Bergman cinema collection. And so it will com- consist of um, a, the opening night film, which is Smiles of a Summer Night, as well as a double feature, Crisis, and A Ship to India, and then next is Wild Strawberries, then To Joy, and Summer Interlude, then Summer with Monica, then Dreams, 
and A Lesson in Love. It's interesting how they do that. They have some films that are just on their own, and then they do these double features. And I'm going to try to do them as double features and see if I can't keep that up as well. So this first selection is going to be nine films. So uh, these will probably be very capsule-like in their review quality. I won't lament or go on too, too long about any any of these groupings uh, to try to keep these episodes to be manageable for the listeners. Um, I hope you enjoy them. I hope you dig them. I'll, I'll try to provide something interesting to listen to. Uh, so without further ado, here's the first film of the opening night selection, Smiles of a Summer Night. Med damerna Ulla Jakobsson, Eva Dahlbeck, Harriet Andersson, Margit Karlqvist, Naimar Ystrand och herrarna Gunnar Björnstrand, Jan Kulle, Åke Fridell, Björn Bjellenstam. All right, just finished. Man, I was not prepared for how much of a delight that film was going to be. I, I'm familiar with Bergman more as someone who is super dramatic uh, with films like Cries and Whispers. Um, although Scenes from a Marriage, which I've seen in love, is very charming and about relationships. Uh, I'd never seen, you know, one of his out and out quote comedies. And I mean, the term comedy is used pretty loosely here. I mean, this is not by any means... Uh, you know, a comedy that's laugh out loud. It's it's a comedy of wit and character, um, and you know, anyway. So so this is a really refreshing, interesting movie, and really, <coughs> pardon me, and really fascinating that they decided to kick off his collection with this. And I can only think is because there's an introduction to the film on the disc with Bergman himself talking about how the film was a turning point in his career because it was such a success everywhere. It was popular and well-received, and it gave him free reign moving forward. Um, he didn't even know they'd entered it into con. He said he was sitting on the shithouse, <laughs> the toilet, reading the paper, and saw that his film was a smash hit at cons, and they hadn't even told him they was entered and playing the festival, and he was broke at the time, somewhat suicidal, and so he borrowed the money from B.B. Anderson, who he was dating at the time, and flew himself to con. And then after that, he said the film, um, he was always able to do whatever he wanted, and no one really interfered with him. And so the film was a turning point in his career in that regard, in that he, at that point, had had a couple flops in a row, his uh, the head of the studio was basically threatening that he would never make another film again. He he thought he was dying of cancer, and so he was faced with two choices, which was to either go off and write a comedy or to kill himself. And uh, and as it stated in in the the liner notes of the the box set, thankfully he chose not to kill himself. He chose to to make this comedy. It's more or less a, a relationship sex farce of uh, that's you know more typical in, in French films where you've got uh, these four mismatched couples who by the end you kind of get a sense that they'll probably be matched up. Uh, and part of the extreme joy of the film is just how Bergman introduces each of the couples and their stories and really unfolds everything in a nice organic way. You, you get these little nuggets of information just as you need them, and it never feels expositional. Expositional. I mean, despite the, the the amount of sheer exposition that you need just to connect everyone and everything together, you're kind of gripped the whole time. The first hour is just pure setup of these characters 
and how they're all interconnected. And it really just gets you excited knowing that eventually they're all going to come into contact with each other and crash together. It really is an ensemble in uh, in the purest sense, and it's, it's delightful as hell. The film is just, it's so rich in character. The women characters in particular are stronger as a whole than anything being made in America at this point in time. This is 1955 where this film comes out. It's really remarkable in so many ways. Um, uh, I don't want to give too much away because I really do want to give you a chance just to kind of go into this. I, I assume that a lot of the people listening to this won't be... Uh, you know, people that have, have watched a lot of Bergman, I, I apologize for assuming that, you know, but I, th- I think it's, it is it is true. And so I do think I, what I will do is try to make make these episodes in particular more of a primer for going into it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much beautiful stuff that I even don't want to ruin about the relationships of these characters because the way that Bergman... Um, introduces them all and, and, and relays information and you slowly get to know them and their interconnectedness. I was really just delighted by how that all came together. You know, this is, uh, you know, it's a romantic comedy where you've got, you know, things being decided in the end over Russian roulette. And that's perfectly fitting for someone like Bergman, if you know him. You know, you've got um, a, a man who is married to, you know, a, a man who's in his 40s, I guess. They don't really state the ages. That's married to a 19-year-old woman, and they've been married since she was 16, uh, but they have not consummated their, their relationship until she was ready, you know, which is creepy when you first realize their age, but then so sweet when you realize that he was, you know, waiting for her to be to be ready for him. Um. Yeah, there's so much going on. It's a really layered, beautiful movie, full of just fantastic performances. I'm gonna say these names wrong, but uh, you know, I I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> they're all Swedish actors. Um, I'll just go through the cast in no particular order. You've got Ulla Jacobson who plays the 19 year old Anne, and she's just. So she just beams on the screen. She's she's delightful. Eva Dahlbeck, who I don't know if I've seen in other works by Bergman. I'd have to look into it. Uh, she's Desiree. She's this this actress who is interconnected amongst the men and the women. She is so goddamn strong. She has this amazing scene where she and the, Frederick, the lawyer who is married to Anne. Uh, the 19-year-old, where they have this past relationship, and fuck, like, I just love their relationship with each other and the way they're able to be so candid. And and he has this moment where he says something really nasty to her about how he just assumed she would not be fit to be a mother. And she takes it so personal and just gives him shit. And and just how how strong and much of a force her character is... It's really, really one of the strongest female characters I've ever seen, and super charming, and and wonderful in so many ways. Harriet Anderson is Petra, the uh, the the maid who is kind of the typical maid that is meant to be the object of lust for so many people. 
There's there's this amazing giggle fit scene with her and Ula, who plays Anne. That's just really super charming, and you wonder if it isn't something that just happened on the day and, and nobody planned for. Uh, the, the men of the film are, are equally good. You've got Gunnar Bjornstrand, who plays Frederick, and he's he's really, really charming. Uh, I'm definitely going to get this name wrong. Bjorn Belt, Stam, who plays Henrik, his son, who's kind of like an emo kid. He's, uh, he's coming out of the seminary, um, and I don't think really wants to be a priest by any means. And his and his dad's constantly mocking him for wanting to be a priest. You you're starting to to feel Bergman's own personal politics coming into into it. Uh, and they have this really great one moment where they're talking about love, and Frederick the father makes a comment about how young men can only love themselves and love the idea of being in love. And it's not until you're an older man that you really understand what it's like. And if I was Henrik Heinrich. Uh, I, I would have been so pissed at my dad for saying something like that. But yet, as someone who's closer in age to Frederick, I don't disagree. I mean, I think knowing how I was at at in in my youth and how I uh, felt and how immature I was and how emotional I got, uh, I think it's it's something that's an, an unfortunately true, at least in my experience. So I love that. And the film is just full of these little comments. Uh, it's so beautifully written uh, and, and, and utterly charming. Anyway, I won't go on too much longer. Otherwise, this episode is going to be super long. I've still got a lot more films to go through. But man, you know, even if you don't decide to go down this path of going through all of Ingmar Bergman's cinema, check out Smiles of a Summer Night. It's so goddamn charming and delightful. You will not you will not regret it, that is for sure. What a great way to to kick off this box set. Loved it. Uh, next up, we've got a double feature. That is Crisis and A Ship to India, two of Bergman's earlier films from 1946 and 1947. <laughs> Alright, so I just finished my own double bill of both Crisis and A Ship to India. And this is going to be brief. I don't have a whole lot to talk about. Uh, This is Bergman's first and his third film, and by all accounts, he considers them to be major disasters. And I gotta be honest, I can't say I love them all that much. I was drawn into Smiles of a Summer Night right away with the characters and the story, and it just held. Here... Not really anything that I'm really enjoying. It was a bit of a slog to get through, to be honest. The cinematography is gorgeous. I mean, what what is coming across is the fact that Bergman is certainly a competent filmmaker. His staging is good. He knows how to make a gorgeous shot. It just everything else feels weighted in melodrama at this point. Uh, Bergman got his start at the Svensk Film Industry. I'm going to. That's how I'm pronouncing it. <laughs> Uh, which is a major, huge company in in Sweden. Uh, He later referred to it as a slave ship. But it seems like an interesting place to have gotten his start. He started off as a a script washer, they called it, and writer. Uh, I think it was his job to... He was handed handed, uh, a movie, or sorry, a movie, a play or a book, 
and it's his job to turn it into a script. And and then eventually they entrusted him to become a director. And, you know, while he wasn't making his best work off the top, it certainly seems like it gave him a hell of a training ground. And, and what an opportunity for any young filmmaker, uh, especially when you look at the career he went on to have. So, yeah, uh, these earlier films are, are challenging to get through. Um, I don't remember having watched these before. I did have the Bergman, the early Bergman box set. So uh, these films are part of that, but I don't know if I ever got around to them, and there's probably a good reason why. So yeah, uh, slogging through those early ones. Uh, But I'm looking forward to what comes next, which is Wild Strawberries, which I have seen, but haven't seen in a really long time. Sora. Sora. They think you've seen Isa. Yeah, I'm leaving the gun now, förstås. So jag är mig inte särskilt lik. Men du, du har inte ändrat dig det allra minsta. So I just finished Wild Strawberries. Um, and for those who are interested, I actually do a much deeper dive than I'll do right now uh, on an episode that will be up in two weeks, I believe, where I watch this with Sam Coyle and Richard Rodder. So check that out. I really, really love this. I haven't seen this film in over a decade, and, and and I was really drawn into it in a way that I don't think I appreciated it back then. I think when I watched it then, I was just going through the numbers of really just wanting to consume as much Bergman as possible because I wanted to do that, just to say I did it. Um, but this time, it really connected to me on, on the, the sense that it's this man on this journey and going through you know, his life again. And, you know, being someone who has had the fortune of finishing through a film school and have been asked to come back to present things and talk to students, you know, I've also take, I've often taken that drive and, and going down old roads and down highways, you, you're flooded with memories from the past. You know, I get that on trips back to where I went to school and also back to the, the small town where I grew up, where I don't go very often anymore because my family has moved away from there and I don't have much of a reason to go there. Uh, but man, it's just like it doesn't take much to just trigger a sense of memory and, and things flood in. You know, I remember for the longest time after my mother passed away when I was a teenager, just smells and, and you know, a song, just little things just kind of fuck with your memory and just bring you back to a place and and yeah I really really loved revisiting this film and and I can see why it is one of Bergman's most cherished you know it's uh it has some rough opening scenes just in the sense that uh when you start watching it you go oof this is going to be slow and boring but I promise you get through the first scene where he's narrating and giving you all the exposition and get through the, the first dream sequence and you're golden. It starts cooking after that. So, so wary viewers who, uh, who start off wild strawberries on a very worried note, uh, fear not. It will, it will improve. Uh, yeah, there's, um, there's some great performances in here by some, some Bergman, some of his regular stars. You've got B.B. Anderson playing a dual role 
as uh, the Sarah from his past and his youth, the woman that he was hoping to marry when he was younger, and then playing this youthful counterpart to her in the present uh, that comes along for the car ride that he's being he's being honored. Basically, the movie centers around this older man who his doctor who is being honored at his old school, and so he's he's driving out to to be honored. And kind of the the path of reflection he takes along the way, um, and it's interesting. Richard and we'll, again we get into it in the episode, but Richard re- re- reflected on how uh, he thought it reminded him of a Christmas Carol, and watching it this time, it did me as well. And the idea of like a more grounded, realistic version of an Ebenezer Scrooge who does go through a, a pretty profound change in the course of a day. And just kind of reliving the past and thinking about it in a in a new and refreshing way. So uh, that connected to me as well because, as you know, I've mentioned it a few times in this podcast. That's a story that really, really resonates with me. That I really like a person kind of revisiting their past and and causing change in the present. I think is a powerful thing that's uh, that we can all kind of relate to in some way. Uh, yeah, there's so much in this film that I really, really love. And, and I really encourage you, if you just want to kind of dip in and out of Bergman and not kind of go into the whole collection, Wild Strawberries is definitely one of the ones that you want to stop and, and take a dive into because, man, it's great. It is so good. And next up, I've got a double bill with To Joy and Summer Interlude. So I just finished um, To Joy and Summer Interlude, although I have to be honest, I did not watch them as a double bill, which I was hoping to and will try to do with um, these films that they've grouped together. Uh, So my viewings were spread out a fair bit. So To Joy isn't as fresh as Summer Interlude, but nonetheless, I took copious notes and have a a warm, fuzzy memory of it. So, So there's that. These are really interesting companion pieces. Um, Bergman has a number of his films that take place in the Swedish summer, which is something that the locals must really treasure given how hard and long their winters are. It was common for people to get away to their summer homes and cottages. Um, and, And these two films, they were shot a year apart, but they share a lot. They're both about artists pulled out of their current moment by a shock that will force them to reflect upon their past with most of the narrative taking place in flashback. In fact, really the films are the flashback stories and the present day is just this framing device that they use. Um, the, the major difference, besides both films having a gender swap, is that in To Joy, we're told from the outset about about this tragedy. Um, and so when we watch the film, we, we watch it through that microscope. But in Summer Interlude, it's a shock to find out what happens um, to one of the characters, and uh, and so it leads us in two different paths, and it's fascinating uh, to see that back to back in two films by the same filmmaker. Because um, we're wondering, uh, the, the mystery in in Summer Interlude is more about why she's such a different person in the present, and so bubbly and full of life 
in the in the flashbacks, and it's the reveal of that question that shows us what happened to the love of her life, and it's a shock seeing what happens to them. You know, they they die. <laughs> Spoiler, uh, and and especially the way Bergman does it, he doesn't foreshadow it. We get the sense that they might have broken up in the past because of an affair that she had with this older guy, Erland. So that was, um, you know, kind of a shock to learn that it was also another lover's death and that the two films are just that close together. Um, and what we also see in these Turley films from from Bergman is this is before he had a hit to his name, really. And we're, we're starting to get this sense of just how amazing he is character and dialogue and they just sparkle in that regard both of them you know kept my full attention from beginning to end i was mesmerized by the stories and and they're very very similar but they're different enough and with some interlude in particular you really start to see bergman honing in on something visually interesting there's a number of shots that i think are exceptionally inspiring and bergman himself thought that this was the first film where he really feels like he has a sense that he knows what he's doing and as a filmmaker, I can totally understand how that can take some time and how you start to get a feeling that I know what I'm doing, even though I'm constantly scared by the process uh, and terrified and work my ass off. It's because uh, I'm starting to, to, these muscles are getting stronger and I, and I feel more comfortable doing that. Uh, I'm going to say her name wrong, but Majbrit Nielsen. Uh, she plays Marta in To Joy and Marie in Summer Interlude. And she's the clear standout of these two films. You get to see such amazing range from her, both in comedy and, and drama here. And it's a shame that she's not spoken of more when people talk about the fantastic female performances in Bergman's filmography, because she is just goddamn fantastic. Um, so to get into these films individually, To Joy was literally such a joy for me. So we're told from the get-go that it's a tragedy, that Stig's wife Marta has died, and and we don't know anything about who she is, anything about the relationship, and it's a brilliant move given the story that follows and all the ups and downs that it's going to have. You know, the story starts with them agreeing that no matter what happens in their relationship, that they'll always be honest with each other. And there's something really lovely about that, and it's pretty accurate throughout. The entire subplot of the film is with this character of Nellie throwing herself at Stig. And Nellie is, is the, the f- one of Stig's f- friend's wife, which makes her extra shitty. Uh, and she's just trying to, him to get, trying to get him to have an affair with her. And he tells Marta about it all along. There's even a moment where he's got some lipstick on his collar. And he's like, oh yeah, that was Nellie. She was kissing me. She was whatever. She was trying to get me to come home or stay home or do whatever. And... And their honesty is just so refreshing and beautiful. And sadly, years later, we find out as they start jumping around that he actually does give in to this fair at some point. Uh, but clearly, Martin knows. They refer to his mistress and how mistresses are expensive. Uh, and by this point in their relationship, they're not happy with each other at all. Uh, and they even state that they're staying together for the kids. But through it all, they're honest with each other. You know, you don't get a sense that they, they started hiding from each other and that was the part of the relationship where it broke down. Uh, it's fascinating. It's lovely. What I really love about this film is just how complex the relationship between Stig and Marta is. You absolutely are not seeing films made at this time in the 1950s in North America dealing with relationships like this. And the honest statements that come out of it are just heartbreaking and beautiful. Marta one time says, is this what my life will be like? Small fears, small joys, nothing to knock my socks off. 
it's such a wonderful observation by, you know, a young parent who's just trying to get through the grind. I loved watching the ups and downs of this and the heartbreak of them finally realizing the mistakes they've made in the relationship once they'd finally fully gotten estranged. There's this lovely sequence of them becoming pen pals when she takes the kids away to their country cottage and they fall in love again through the writing to each other. But of course, this is the point where tragedy befalls them and when we catch up to the beginning of the film where we learn that Marta dies and it's devastating and it's beautiful. We get to end on this lovely moment with the conductor of the orchestra that they're in trying to explain what to joy means but having to give up because he doesn't really have the words. It's a lovely metaphor for the film and lovers' relationship and with each other. And, you know, their relationship wasn't easily defined either. It was complex and real. And man, I just, I just love this movie so much. And then we get to uh, Summer Interlude. We get a mirror image to some extent of the story, but the summer hero is a musician in in an orchestra. Instead, sorry, she's not. That's that's uh, to Joy. She's a ballerina in a company, and they're getting ready for opening night. And then the dress rehearsal, something goes wrong. It's delayed because they they've burnt out a fuse, and so they're told that they have to work late, but they can go off and have a bit of a break now. And just before she leaves, this mysterious package, um, or I guess this happens before the dress rehearsal starts, this package shows up with a diary in it. And clearly, uh, she's shaken by this. And then when she's given a break at the theater, she she goes off to walk on her own and, and starts down this memory lane path where we start to learn all about what who wrote the diary, what it meant, all these things. Um, and the first time we get back, we go to her youth. It is shocking because she's essentially a different character at this point. She's so bright and so full of life, quirky and funny and charming and fiercely intelligent. They set up this little love triangle between her and this older man, Erland, who she refers to as Uncle Erland, and he clearly does not want that. I mean, he tells her straight up that he has desires to run away with her, and she flirts back with him. Um... But it's the young Henrik who ends up winning her over, uh, even though he's desperately jealous and insecure. You know, we get to see her toy with his affections. He falls madly and fast in love with her and even tells her, and her response is to ask him, how does it feel to feel that way and tell someone? I mean, that's her cheeky response. She doesn't throw the words back at him. She doesn't say, I love you too. And there's something honest and beautiful and enduring about that. I mean, she's constantly mocking him with stuff like, you know, she says, tell me about your jealousy. And after the, right after they hook up, she says, now you have a lover. Will you brag to your friends? And she wants to know how that'll feel. She's very curious about the emotions of others and how she affects them. Um, and he declares right then and there that he's going to marry her one day. Um, we, at this point, Around this point, we, we interrupt the flashback and see her returning to the present in the same summer home that she visited that summer. And Erland is there now. And we learn not only was that he was the one that sent the diary of Henrik. And the diary did belong to Henrik, this this guy that she's fallen in love with. But also that he has something that we assume was a fling together. And I instantly assumed that they ended up having an affair. And eventually that was the thing that led to the breakup uh, and the end of the relationship between her and Heinrich. And I love that Bergman's not giving anything away here. And it's just a giant mystery box. It's really, really engaging. And then it's the next sequence, which is the real heartbreaker. You know, that's where we're coming into the ending. And after getting a sense of, of Heinrich's jealousy, they have this beautiful evening together where she insists that you have me. 
And she's not joking, but she's earnest. And she says it over and over again, you have me. Um, she loves him. And the next day, they're lamenting their final days together, solidifying their promises. She's going back to the ballet. He's got to go back to university. Um, she even throws around the word engagement. And then he says the jeweler is closed that day. She just says that the kind of engagement we have or will have is with rings of grass and 24 karat kisses. She doesn't care that it might not be official with a ring. She just wants to know that he wants her. Um, and then Henrik decides to go for a celebratory swim and dives into the water. And I mean, this be honest, this is the part that is not super well done in the film. There's some kind of an accident. But we see him drag himself out of the water, and it looks like he's just got a broken leg. But then he's able to get up on it at one point, and he mentions his back is sore. Uh, he's not getting around super well, but he also doesn't seem that bad off, considering that in the next scene, he's fucking dead. Heinrich dies of some diving-related accident that he was initially able to walk away from. Um, you know, this is the part I would have a rethink. I mean, just have him walk, dive into the water... She screams, and then you cut to him on the table. Then I buy that. You know, all the stuff of him getting out of the water feels a bit hokey. All you really needed to do was just have him uh, jump in the water, she screams, and then cut to him laid out and dead on the table. And then, you know, the mystery is there. And not there, but, you know, we we, we buy it. That stuff, that stuff goes together just quite nicely. And then... We get to see her transition. She says she denounces God. She hates him, even if he's real. And Erlen tells her that he'll help her uh, teach her how to put a wall up around herself to protect herself so no one can get in. And we get to see her transition into this harsh woman that we know in the present. But now back in the present day, she realizes how much that all affected her and how that wall is still there and how it helped her forget Hon- Hon- Heinrich, uh, you know, for better or worse. And her new love arrives, and she's clearly this changed person through the course of these memories. Um, but he's treating her the way that they clearly always treat each other, which is not well. Um, you know, he's making fun of her, and she just kind of stops at one point, and she says, can you be nice to me? And his response is great. He says, why? You'll just push me away. And I love it. You know, you get so much... Uh, from this little exchange about the relationship in such a small time, you know, she realizes how cold she's become and she wants to get that part of her youth back, the part of her that loved Heinrich and didn't worry so much and was carefree and, and, and full of life. And there's this ongoing theme throughout the film about her and the young dancers and how she feels threatened by it all. And I love that it's really about this, that it's not about her getting too old to be a dancer anymore. It's about her just realizing what she lost in her youth and this this sense of herself because of what happened and how she shut herself off. And she wants her youth back, not because it makes her a dancer that can go on and on, but because Heinrich was a part of it, and she was truly happier back then. The ending caught me off guard. Um, she gives this new love interest Heinrich's journal to read and instructs that he come to see her when he's finished it. And, and ideally, it'll give her, him some insight into her. And I love their final sequence together the next day. He's, he's read it. He's got it in his hand. And he's smiling at her, beaming from backstage. And she dances over. And they just cut to this beautiful shot of their feet. And she's dancing towards him. And then goes up on her tiptoes. And then heads off to the dancers. It's so fascinating and beautiful and simple. And this film is just full of beautiful shots like that. You know, there's a real master, cl- master class in this film of how to make the 4-3... Um, 
the four three ratio just really really cinematic. There's a great two shot in the film at one point where uh, there's this amazing background that goes off in the distance for forever, and just tons of stuff like that. Um, you know, the film ends on a hopeful note in a way that I really didn't expect, and I just love it for that too. I think between the two, uh, it's a toss up. They're really both great films. And I love that they got paired together this way, and it completely makes sense, not only because they were essentially shot back-to-back, but because they, you know, they're basically brother, brother and sister pieces. You know, I was pleasantly surprised by these films. I really, really dug it. Really dug both of them. And next, I dig into Summer with Monica. So I just finished watching Summer with Monica. Man, I have a really complicated uh, relationship with this film. Uh, I shouldn't say relationship. I've only watched it once, and this was the first time. So, um, yeah, it's a tough one. There's This is definitely one of those kind of films that you have to appreciate in the context of the time it was made. Um, for those who are not uh, familiar with it, it's a story of these two young lovers who we learn late on, although you know they're young, uh, but you figure out how young they are by the film's halfway mark, that she's 18 and he's 19. And they meet, and it just feels like they could have been anyone. The, both, both of them were just young dumb and just wanting to fall in love with somebody, anybody. And so they just kind of fall for each other, but for reasons that are not really clear or there's nothing that he or she does besides just be there. And I think at that age in your life, that's probably enough, if I'm honest. You know, finding someone that's willing to to be with you and you've never been with anyone, that's, you know, that's enough, I think, for that age of people. I certainly would have felt that way. Had I been one of those two at that age, um, and and so they embark. They decide to you know they both got shitty jobs. She quits his. He gets fired from his kind of sorter. Though he also quits when he stands up to his boss, um, even though he's being a bit of a shit. So they decide to take his dad's boat because his dad's in the hospital sick. You know, so he abandons his his poor father. And they, they go off for the summer and just have a grand, stinky adventure. And partway through, you know, the, the honeymoon ends pretty quickly when she admits that she's pregnant or thinks that she's pregnant. And so for him, he's like, well, we got to start planning. We have to, you know, get our lives in order. And she does not want one little piece of that. She just wants this adventure to continue forever, um, you know, and they're, they, they, they get to the point where they're just eating mushrooms and starving because of it. And she says she remembers this field with potatoes and apples that they could steal. And then they go and, and she ends up getting caught in the pantry by this woman of the house and the police are on their way. And then she steals their pot roast and, and runs off into the woods and she's running back to the boat and back to Harry 
and just stopping every now and then to you know rip a piece of meat off of their teeth and just keep on going and it's such a fantastic little sequence. I mean, Harry Anderson is is pretty phenomenal in this part. Um, and honestly, I got to be honest. I mean, I didn't love her. And I think that's partly intentional. You know, they've got her putting pigtails on and playing with her hair and chomping her gum, which is was super off-putting for me. But that's kind of the point is that she's a child. And the more the movie goes on, you realize just how much of a child she is. They're on the boat. She's insisting that he has to take care of them, that she needs better food. Um, and his solution, of course, is to go back, go home and get jobs. And she screams. She refuses. She does not want to do that. And at that moment, I just want to reach through the, the, the screen and, and slam my fists on the table and say, well, don't you understand that you're part of the problem? And that if you want things, you have to help work for them. And she just drives me nuts. You know, I started to really, really hate her. Um, but when you look at the context of the time for this movie, you know, she's going against the status quo as a woman in the 1950s. She is pregnant and doesn't want to join society and do what she's expected to do. You know, she um, it, and, I, and I can only imagine what that was like at the time. I know uh, Bergman had a hard time getting it financed by his, his usual company, and so he went to them and said, look, give us a small amount of money in six weeks, and we'll come back out of the Appalachian Mountains, and we'll have a movie. I said Appalachian. I don't know if that's the actual name of it. Uh, but anyway, we'll come back. We'll have a movie for you. And then it became popular internationally because um, an exploitation filmmaker in the United States bought the American rights and re-edited it as just Monica. Uh, the story of a bad girl, or something like that, which is a fantastic and terrible title. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this movie. I think there's a lot of it that works really, really well. I think it's super smart um, and, and refreshing and beautiful in a lot of ways, and simple, too, in, in a way that's really, really nice. But her character is so off-putting for me, when I when I judge it by today's standards, although it just feels like that's exactly what Bourbon is going for at the time, or I don't know, it's it's complicated. Uh, there's this great, amazing moment when Harry goes off uh, for work for a couple of days, and she's left alone in the city. And you know, at this point, she's at her most unlikable. She's got his aunt is taking care of the kid because she thinks that Monica's got a job. Monica's bitching about the fact that they're broke and don't have any money. She's not willing to help out in that regard at all. She's not even, you know, saying, I'm going to go look for work today or think about it. She has nothing to do with wanting to work. You know, she just wants to live off of him, not watch the baby. It's, it's kind of unclear what she wants, but she's just more and more a shitty person. But then, so she meets up with um, Lelo, Lel, the douchebag. Uh, that I think is her ex in the bar, and and they, she you know they have a small intimate moment where he light, she lights her cigarette off of his, and then she sits back and the camera tracks in, and the lighting goes theatrical for a moment where everything just kind of falls off into darkness around her, and the and the shot just holds as the music grows sinister. 
And it's almost as if that moment, it's the movie and it's her and it's Bergman just saying, fuck you, judge me if you dare. And that's almost the thing that redeems her entire character for me when when she's just coming off as a lazy, terrible human being. And that's what I love about Bergman, too. I mean, he's not interested in creating these easy characters that are just quirky and you fall in love with in mere moments. I mean, he's creating real human beings here that are flawed and messed up and not always doing the most likable thing. And that's certainly applaudable for, especially this time in cinema, when you compare it against what's coming out across the pond or various ponds over in North America and even in the UK, you know? So, uh, so this is a great movie and actually it's, it's inspiring to me because I've got a similar, uh, element of a story I'm working on right now myself that this is gonna, whether I like it or not, definitely inspire me. <laughs> so that's, that's something. So that made it totally worth watching if, if nothing else. So, so next up we have the last two films, of this section and it's a double bill again we've got dreams and a lesson in love all right i just finished dreams and a lesson in love though i didn't watch them back to back i split it over two separate viewings uh, first, Dreams. That's the, it's the order of these things. Uh, the film's sort of a little tedious for me, though the imagery was fascinating. One thing that really struck me as I watched this was how much style this had throughout. And it feels like it might have been his most stylish film to date at that point, though the, uh, the chronology of these is, uh, is a bit confusing based on how they've laid out this set. So uh, I reserve uh, the right to change my... my <laughs> Thoughts on that once I, I look at it in order. Um, it took me a while to get a handle on the story, as simple as it was. Um, and perhaps, maybe that's the challenge with this film. There's almost too little going on from the outset. I really love how Bergman has this ensemble mentality with his casting. It's like he's got this theater company where he just repurposes people. And, I mean, I do that myself. And I have ever since I was in high school. And I actually had a little theater company. And there's something nice about that. It's interesting how a lot of filmmakers tend to do that. Um, and here we have Gunnar uh, Bjornstrand. I think I said that right. And Harriet Anderson is as young and old would-be lovers. And in the next film that I'll talk about, you know, they, they go on to play father and daughter. And they're both convincing in both roles. So that's always fascinating. The performance in this film are really what makes it worth checking out. Both Eva Dahlbeck and Harriet Anderson really have moments to shine here. Uh, I love Harriet's scene where she's drunk as Doris and she starts asking Gunner for all these things uh, because he, you know, the setup is that he's this giant sugar daddy who's just trying to, you know, win her over with, with buying her stuff. And so she kind of calls him on that. She asks him to produce a film for her to star in. She wants a car, a country house. And then right away she tells him that he shouldn't buy her anything because they're never going to meet again and he just needs to figure his own shit out. Um, Eva Dahlbeck as Suzanne has this amazing, incredible, horrible confession that she wishes her mistresses, her her lover's wife and children were dead. 
And she knows how terrible it is. And she says in this monologue how terrible it is that she wishes that, but she can't help wishing it. You know, I love that Bergman doesn't shy away from the moral complexities of these characters saying unpopular things. It's really refreshing and wonderful, and it's a real touchstone uh, of his films that I, that I really walk away with and I really enjoy. I love the simplicity of the structure of this film. You know, Doris screws up. She's late getting the shoot, so Suzanne is frustrated by her own things going on in life. She fires her, and then we both follow. We both follow both these women as they have these really turbulent, emotionally exhausting days. It's a nice comparison, and I love how uh, the ending bookends the beginning. You know, one could argue that nothing's changed, and there's a shift. It's subtle, but it's wonderful. Um, some miscellaneous observations. I love the necklace of Canadian river pearls. That's fun. It really is a beautiful necklace. Uh, just when you when you look at it, the details of how the, the big stones and they get smaller as they go around, that would be quite the, the thing to pour through and find the right sizes on all sides. Um, I love the train sequence at the very beginning. Um, they open and close the doors, and then she rips open the window, and the sound of the squealing tracks and the rain hitting her face and revealing it again. Just a lot of really beautiful imagery going on here. Um it's it's short and sweet, but I love the sequence of Otto, Otto really hating all the rides at the fair while Doris is just really, really loving them. It's so much fun. Uh, Doris plays a Sarabon record. Ah, uh, little nod to his last and final film. Um, I love the, the story about the, the daughter being born and the mother thinking that she had the face of a wolf. Um... And then Gunner makes a comment when his daughter actually shows up later that she is basically a wolf because she's so f- fucking cruel. You know, her one line is about Harriet. Is like, couldn't you find something a little cheaper or that looks a little cheaper? I mean, God, she's fucking mean. So I like Dreams. It was it was really charming. Um, and then the second film in this this set that they they put together for this uh, this viewing package and the last film in this uh opening night series is called a lesson in love this was bergman's first full-on comedy and apparently he was nervous as hell to do it but i gotta tell you i wish he'd done a lot more if they were going to be as awesome and entertaining as this one it really is something special and i encourage you to check it out i love that it starts off telling us through narration that we can watch this film with an indulgent smile um you know, the opening narration tells us that it's an adult comedy, but could have been a tragedy if it all hadn't turned out well. There's something really irreverent and charming about that. Uh, so here we get the story of a relationship that can be at times confusing because it jumps around between various time periods. And for the most part, I can follow it and I walk away pretty contented I didn't miss anything of vast importance. But, I mean, I think the film works as well as it does because the entire thing is meant to be this puzzle piece where they slowly but surely layer in information and do reveals for us, and we start to connect all the pieces. And that's really part of the fun of figuring out how people fall and where we are in the order of things. Uh, The slow reveal of Carl Adam uh, having been engaged to Marianne years ago, um, and that's how Gunnar met her, her now husband, and, and they admit their feelings for each other on her wedding day to Carl Adam, and now, many, many years later, uh, they're dating again now that um, Gunnar and and Eva have, have broken apart. Uh, and man, that scene, 
where they come back and tell Carl Adam in front of everyone that the wedding is off and that they're in love. That's a fucking incredible, awesome, insane scene. I mean, first of all, it's mostly single takes or just one single take that goes on and on, and they're just giving it their all. Um, Ake, um, is his name? Ake Gronberg? I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Uh, he plays Carl Adam, and Eva plays Marianne here, and they are phenomenal in this scene. The way they go at each other, it's it's a really great sequence, uh, and I want to revisit it. It's, it's seriously impressive how they, they play that scene. Um, I love the energy and the pace of this film overall compared to some of his films. The cutting in is hard and jarring in and out of dream and memory sequences. Um, it's definitely something we, I don't think we see again from Bergman, but it's something that I, I, I walk away with going, oh, it's, it's, I like that style quite a bit. Uh, Yvonne Lombard as Suzanne. She's captivating. I love her scene where she comes on strong to Gunner. I mean, none of Bergman's characters ever feel like tropes, even if they do trope-esque things. You know, she wears him down. They kiss. I mean, everyone just has mistresses left, right, and center because it's Sweden, and that's a thing. I love Harriet Anderson's character in this film, Nix. She comes off as this really modern and progressive character, and she asks her dad, who's Gunner, uh, if he could operate and turn her into a man because the papers are saying that it's possible and she'd like to have it done. Um, she doesn't want to have to rely on the way men do things for women and how women kind of toe to men. You know, it's such a great and amazing progressive character for 1954. Um, and, and one question is, like, I don't ever mentioned, but I think it's assumed that she's probably a lesbian. She seems to be in love with her best friend. Um, either way, I love that she and her father in this film can have an open conversation with his mistress. I mean, they have this really, really great and beautiful relationship. The only thing that doesn't work in the film for me is there's a sequence near the end with the grandfather. It feels like it could have probably been cut out entirely. It's not significantly uh, needing to be there. And at the very least, it could have been trimmed down. It just it bogs and slows down the film just when it's really hitting a stride, which is, which is a shame. The grandfather's sequence is a long one just to get to the point of him saying something like everything has a beginning, development, and then an ending, which feels like a metaphor for their relationship, but there had to have been a more efficient way of getting that across. Uh, miscellaneous thoughts for this one. Bergman really likes naming people Suzanne and Marianne. There's not a lot of variety and creativity in his naming of people, and I wonder if there's something behind that. Eva has this great line, a woman doesn't want to feel like a wife, she wants to feel like a woman, and it's up to the man to figure out how to make that happen. Uh, I love that uh, Carl Adam decides to get Gunner shit-faced on this drink called Volcano, which is essentially just this cocktail of seemingly random booze that the bartender just splashes together. Um, <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed that just happening in the background. There's this amazing shot at the end of the film. They come out of this club where Carl Adam is trying to uh, uh, really, really put this, the, cough, the the final nail in the coffin for, for his rival's marriage. And they, they end up on this street, and we get this beautiful long shot across the water, and she's pissed off that Gunnar kissed this woman to make her jealous. It's just this great, beautiful staging choice to, to have pretty much the entire scene just play out like this. Uh, beautiful, beautiful imagery, once again, going on in these films. 
it ends with Cupid showing up. I mean, sure, why not? It's a weird choice. It's almost like Bergman is mocking the film itself and the idea of a perfect marriage or a perfect divorce. And uh, he's just kind of letting us know. It's like sticking his, his thumb in the lens. Um, overall, I love this film. I like the ideas it presents about fidelity and marriage and long-lasting relationships and if it's an illusion. I mean, Bergman films are always about the world of ideas, and that's what really, really makes me love him as a filmmaker. Uh, so, yeah, so th- this is it. For the uh, the first leg of this giant Bergman journey, I'm going to take you guys on over the course of I don't know how long. It, it'll probably be at least a year. There's 39 films to get through, so I'll, I'll try to spread these things out so they're a bit more... Um, uh, they're not, you know, three or four films before, and then I get to these. So, uh, so yeah, I hope you're enjoying them. I will probably do some solo episodes, just like the, the Wild Strawberry one. Uh, just to get a bit more in-depth with other people's feedback on this. But overall, uh, this is it. And thanks for joining me for Bergman's opening night catalog from the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Collection. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.